Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, Nehemiah chapter four. Why are the nations in an uproar? The people's grumbling in vain. The earth's kings are taking positions leaders conspiring together against Adonai and his anointed and they cry, let's break their fetters, let's throw off their chains. He who sits in heaven laughs. Adonai looks at them in derision. And then in his anger, he rebukes them. He terrifies them in his fury. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, You are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod. Shatter them like a clay pot. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve Adonai with fear. Rejoice, but with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish along the way. When suddenly his anger blazes, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 captures both the earthly political circumstances and the spiritual reality of the situation that we're peering in upon as we read the history of Nehemiah and his determination to rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem despite all this outrage expressed by the enemies of the Jews. And since the end of chapter 2 we have watched as local and regional political leaders, Gentiles of course, have stepped up the ante of pressure and threats as they oppose the mission that Nehemiah was sent to accomplish by King Artaxerxes. A mission that behind the scenes was achieving God's will. But why are these various potentates that surround Judah and Jerusalem so against something as normal and typical and necessary as rebuilding the once formidable defensive walls of Jerusalem. Almost every city of consequence throughout the Middle East had defensive walls. In fact, in general, walls were requirement number one to even be classified as a city. The precise political reasons for their immovable stance against the Jews rebuilding Jerusalem aren't stated. But Nehemiah seemed to have understood the enemy's mindset quite well, which led him to say to Sanvalat and Tovia and Geshem, but you have no share right or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. In other words, those leaders assumed that they had some kind of inherent right to peace, uh, to, to, to disturb the peace of the Jews, to lord over Jerusalem. And by studying documents written from that era, 
it's not hard to piece together the reality that the farther from the power center at Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire, that the province would lay, the harder it was for the Persian king to control it. And so it was easier for a local ruler to explore his ambitions of expanding his his power base and, and, and his reach a bit beyond what the king of Persia had legally authorized. You know, kings and governors hold those offices for a reason. They love the prestige. They desire the power and the control. Usually the more the better. So when they see an opening to expand their rule to a nearby population center, the temptation is often too much to resist. But this still doesn't answer the question as to why they detested the Jews as a people. You know, it's one thing to want to conquer a territory for the sake of of wanting more power. It's another to harbor a deep-seated hatred for its indigenous people. And for this, there seems to be no rational answer. You know, when I read when I read Nehemiah, I feel as if I'm reading today's Jerusalem Post. I know that the Arab nations surrounding Israel can't tolerate the thought of a tiny Jewish nation existing in their midst. But why? What about the Jews is so distasteful? What are the Jews doing to them? Do the Jews have designs on expanding their territory into Jordan or Syria or Lebanon? Or in lording over the region? Do they plan on converting Muslims to Judaism? To the answer... To all of those questions, as far as anybody knows, the answer is no. As it was with Sanvalat, Tovia, and Kshem, so it is today with all the Arab-speaking nations surrounding Israel. The reasons for why they despise Israel and the Jewish people so violently escapes defining. And Psalm 2, which I read to open and set the tone for today's lesson, rather well captures the sense of a mysterious hatred toward God's kingdom, land, and people since time immemorial by asking the simple rhetorical question, why are the nations, meaning Gentile nations, in an uproar of the peoples, grumbling in vain? Why? And the true reason is that they are Satan's proxies fighting against the God of Israel. Therefore against his people and his plan of redemption even if they don't consciously realize it. Well as we ended chapter 3 last week, Nehemiah had organized teams of Jews to work together on well-defined sections of the wall that each team had chosen to take the responsibility to restore. 
smaller families adopted small wall sections to rebuild, larger families, numerous members of nearby towns, even professional trade guilds chose larger sections to reconstruct. And the reconstruction was progressing rapidly to the point that it caught the attention and drew the ire of Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem. They became furious, probably not just a little bit embarrassed. These Jews that they thought so little of were moving in lightning fashion to accomplish what seemed impossible. Thus the three Gentile rulers increased their campaign of ridicule and veiled threats, trying to derail what to them was an oncoming train. However, despite their interference, the wall sections were soon joined together so that there were no longer any gaps in the protection. And this happened because, as the final words of chapter 3 say, the people worked with a will. Let's read chapter 4 together. Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's a page it's page 1134. <clears throat> but when Sanvalat Tovia, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodim heard that the repairs on the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and the breaks were being filled in, they became very angry. All of them together plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and thus throw us into confusion. However, we prayed to our God and, because of them, organized a watch against them day and night. Judah was saying, the strength of the people who carry loads away is starting to fail. There's so much rubble. We can't build the wall. Our enemies were saying, they won't know or see anything until we've already infiltrated them and begun killing them and stopping the work. And even the Judeans living near them came and must have said to us ten times, from every place you must come back to us. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed men according to their families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after inspecting them, I stood up and addressed the nobles and leaders and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember, Adonai, who is fear, great and fearful, a fight for your brothers and sons and daughters and wives and homes. When our enemies heard that the plot was known to us and God had foiled their plans, we all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And from then on, half of my men would do the work. Half of them held the spears, shields, bows, and armor, while the leaders stood guard behind the entire house of Judah as they continued building the wall. Those who carried loads held their loads with one hand and carried a weapon in the other. As for the construction workers, each one had his sword sheathed at his side. That is how they built. The man to sound the alarm on the shofar stayed with me. I said to the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people, this is a great work, and it is spread out. We are separated on the wall, one far from another. But whenever, wherever you are, when you hear the sound of the shofar, come to that place, to us. Our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work. 
half of them held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. Also at that time I told the people, let everyone with a servant stay the night in Jerusalem so that at night they can be a guard for us even as they work during the day. I, my kinsmen, my servants, and my bodyguards never took off our clothes. Everyone who went to get water took his weapon. The opening statement of verse 1 sets the context for this chapter. And as I mentioned earlier, the local and regional governors were intensely unhappy that the Jews were merrily humming along, showing an amazing degree of solidarity and energy and skill, and completing the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem at an astounding pace. Why so angry? No reasons given, other than the rebuilding by the Jews was against their collective wills. But this time, there is a fourth Gentile leader added to the group of upset Gentile rulers. Now we don't get a name, only that he governed the Ashdodim, that is the people of the province of Ashdod. Yes, this is generally the same Ashdod that exists today as part of Israel in which Seed of Abraham Ministries owns and operates a teaching center where the Bible is taught to the Jewish people in Hebrew. Ashdod was the newer name for what had at one time been the region called Philistia. Apparently this change of names occurred because the king of Ashdod, one of the five Philistine city-states had become the most dominant of the five. So the Ashdodim were still the Philistines just by a different name. So now we have four outraged rulers who intend to do something about these Jews having the nerve to rebuild their own city. Having the nerve to do this in their own province but without the approval or the assistance of their neighbors. This passage truly feels like back to the future to me. Let's identify each of the four and the modern names for these same people and places. Sanvalat occupied what today the world calls the West Bank or what is more correctly called Samaria. Today the West Bank Palestinians, led by the terrorist Fatah regime, occupies this region. The next group mentioned is the Arabs. Their leader is Geshem. And the Arabs occupied an area that stretched from what today is called the Negev all the way to the Arabian Peninsula. Today, Israel occupies the Negev. But the Arab Saud family owns and controls the region that we know better as Saudi Arabia. After that is the unnamed ruler of Ashdod at the one-time region of Philistia. Today Ashdod is a Jewish port city, but the remainder of the former Philistine territory is contained in the infamous Gaza Strip. The Gaza people are another and separate faction of so-called Palestinians who are ruled by the terrorist group Hamas. So here in Nehemiah, 
we see that Judah was completely surrounded by enemies. Sanvalat ruled Samaria to the north, Tobiah ruled, or perhaps represented, Ammon to the east, Geshem ruled Arabia to the south, and the unnamed Philistine ruler ruled Ashdod to the west. And now, in the 21st century AD, Israel is surrounded by the West Bank Palestinians to the north, Jordan to the east, Saudi Arabia and Egypt to the south, and Gaza to the west. Amazing. Where else on this planet has so little changed over the past 2,500 years? So if we want to better understand what comes next in chapter 4, pressure, fear, intimidation of Nehemiah's Jews, it's easier to identify with since we can see it on TV every day. The identical circumstances, the same situation that faces modern Israel. And what was Judah's and now Israel's response to those unfriendly neighbors who constantly harassed and attacked and threatened them? They built a defensive wall. And what was their neighbor's reaction to the wall? The same today as what we read here in Nehemiah. Indignation, answer, and homicidal threats. And exactly what danger or risk does a defensive wall pose to a neighboring nation or people? None! It just makes the hostile intent of those neighbors upon Israel far more difficult to bring about. So they don't like it. And that is why the four rulers in Nehemiah's day were so angry. And it is why Israel's enemies today are so angry at Israel's successful construction of a perimeter wall of protection. And in verse 2, not surprisingly, this gang of four decided that they would attack Jews in Jerusalem in retribution with the goal of disrupting the wall building. Scholars regularly debate whether the planned attack was a bluff or was fully intended. I don't know. And it really doesn't matter because the result was the same. My opinion is that they probably intended to commit terrorist-like acts and continue day and night pressure to foment trouble, but not to wage an all-out battle using soldiers because in the end, those four rulers were part of the Persian Empire. And King Artaxerxes was their sovereign just as he was Nehemiah's sovereign. But King Artaxerxes had given Nehemiah his personal blessing and his help to rebuild Jerusalem. So it's hard to imagine that these four enemies would completely disregard the king's orders and commit to war. On the other hand, it's certainly possible that since the entire point of rebuilding Jerusalem, at least from the king's perspective, was to provide a military fort for a substantial Persian presence to control the southern part of the Persian Empire, something these four rulers obviously didn't want, that the Persian king at this stage may not have been able to do very much about these Gentile rulers thwarting his plan. And there is one other factor at play. When this same king 
Artaxerxes, many years earlier, had sent Ezra to reestablish the law of Moses among the people of Judah, the Jewish people. Ezra also started to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The local Gentile rulers complained to Artaxerxes and he indeed ordered Ezra to halt the work. In Ezra 4.21-23 is a reminder. So now, order that these men stop work and that this city not be rebuilt until I order it. Take care not to neglect your duty, otherwise the harm may increase to the damage of the king. And when the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shimshai, the secretary, and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem, to the Judeans, and stopped their work by force of arms. So perhaps the gang of four hoped that if enough trouble broke out, enough innocent blood was shed, and the whole region was now in danger of destabilization, then Artaxerxes would have second thoughts about it. Once again, stop the wall construction and bring his cupbearer home. Now, what was Nehemiah's response to this new challenge? He led the Jews in prayer. But then he acted. He, no doubt, didn't know for certain any more than we do whether this threat was only bluster or a real attack was coming. So as the only prudent corpse, he set watchmen on the walls to keep alert. This was Nehemiah's typical way of approaching every challenge. He approached God in prayer, followed by decisive action. But next we read that the people of Judah were also beginning to lose their zeal for this project. Their, the constant intimidation, the difficult working conditions, the men having to leave their hometowns and be far away from their families and away from their farming activities in order to build the wall. The daunting, physically exhausting task they were facing even if they had no opposition. This was all finally taking its toll. So much so that a pessimistic jingle popped up among the workers. And it began to circulate. And it said, the strength of the people who carry loads away is starting to fail and there's so much rubble we can't build the wall. Now just as an aside, this verse structure is called a kinah, a lament. And it has a unique a uniquely identifiable rhythm to it in Hebrew. It's actually what's called a 3-2 rhythm that vanishes once it is translated into other languages such as English. We just don't see it anymore. That many Gentile Bible scholars don't seem to know this has led to all sorts of interesting translations of this passage that misses the point entirely. And the point is that the Jewish people were discouraged even before the threat of attacks became elevated. So what we have here is a quickly deteriorating situation accompanied by discontent. And the experienced leader Nehemiah knows he's got to nip this in the bud. Or the project is doomed to fail just as all the other earlier attempts had failed. In fact, in verse 6... We learn that Judeans that live nearby, no doubt family of the workers, came to Jerusalem in this steady stream, 
pleading with their loved ones to return home. And this had everything to do with the rising tensions. The fear of not knowing what these four Gentile rulers might do. Plus, as we'll examine shortly, the very real prospect of running out of food from the fields and vineyards and orchards because they couldn't be properly tended. Now, verse 7 is problematic because as it's transmitted to us from the most ancient Hebrew scripture we have, it's not intelligible. There are obvious copyist errors. So about the best we can do is to speculate based on the context that surrounds the verse. But the gist of it is that this is part of the response of Nehemiah to the danger of attack as well as the discouragement of the Jewish people. So in a kind of kill two birds with one stone maneuver, He stations his men at strategically important locations around the wall perimeter as a precaution. Now it's nearly impossible to know what strategic purpose it served to place people at the lowest points of the wall when it's always the high ground that's the most advantageous in battle. So we kind of need to just move on and understand that regardless of the details, the goal was to make a show of force by gathering the people together as a battle unit. Now in ancient times, even during the era of the kings, while there were indeed full-time professional soldiers and officers that formed a standing army, it was usually comparatively modest in size. And this is because when larger forces were needed, the civilian males of the community, or maybe the kingdom, formed a, a, a civilian reserve militia. Then the professional soldiers would be used to mainly train and organize and lead the militia. This is what we see happening here in Nehemiah. We know that Nehemiah came to Jerusalem with a military escort. So probably they were tasked to stay with Nehemiah as his personal bodyguard. The result of this move by Nehemiah is that the people of Judah, when gathered together, gained courage, as happens when we are with others of like mind and purpose. And when the enemy saw the preparations for battle, which Nehemiah intended for them to see, they quickly understood that they would not easily take Jerusalem or succeed in a surprise attack. Now this, along with other actions of Nehemiah, provides marvelously good and practical instruction for modern day believers. Too many of us, having fallen into a passive pattern of earnestly praying but then standing aside when the enemy, fleshly or spiritual, either one, attacks, assuming it's up to God to take care of business. Paul taught us how to prepare. And he cautioned us against fear and passivity by using familiar military war metaphors to get his point across. You know, not much point to prepare if one is going to leave it to the other guy to deal with the enemy. Ephesians 6, 10-18 Finally, grow powerful in union with the Lord. 
in union with his mighty strength. Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we're not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So, take up every piece of war equipment God provides us. So that when the evil day comes, you'll be able to resist. And when the battle is won, you will still be standing. Therefore, stand. Have the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Put on righteousness for a breastplate. Wear on your feet the readiness that comes from the good news of shalom. Always carry the shield of trust with you, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of deliverance, along with the sword given by the Spirit, that is the Word of God. As you pray at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests in the Spirit, vigilantly and persistently for all of God's people. Think about verse 14. The purpose of preparing for battle in union with the Lord is, as Paul says in verse 14, run away from the fight as fast as you can. Right? Is that what it says? Does Paul say, no, quit. Just quit. Let somebody else fight this battle for you. Or stand to the side. Just sit and watch. No, of course not. Paul says all this preparation is so we stand. Folks, our walk with God is not necessarily a peaceful saunter in the Garden of Eden. If we want to be more participant than spectator, then we will face risk and danger and getting dirty and bruised. Prayer is so very important. It is indispensable. But prayer is only part of the preparation for battle. Only when we are directly fighting spirits is the prayer itself also the battle plan. At all other times, when we are facing human enemies who are being led by evil, evil spiritual forces, we must stand and do battle. Might Paul have taken his cue from Nehemiah? I kind of think so. Yeah, I do. Now, Nehemiah, this great leader that he is, after gathering his people, putting them in battle order, he addresses them. And he encourages them by using the most powerful motivation known to humans. Fighting for those dearest to you. The time for prayer and contemplation has come and gone. Now it's time for the rubber to hit the road. Don't be afraid, he tells them. Rather, it's Jehovah who's to be feared. Not the enemy. Fight! Fight to protect your children and your wives and your fellow brethren and your homes. So, records Nehemiah in verse 9, 
when the four rulers heard and they saw that the Jews were prepared to do battle, this frustrated their plans. Well, they figured they had a, a cakewalk ahead of them. But just as prayer was but preparation, so was the organizing of the men in their show of force. Just preparation. Each and every day, from here forward, they would have to be alert and watchful and ready to fight at a moment's notice. We are given some detail about just how the defensive precautions were organized. It was that half of my men, it says, would work on the wall, the other half would patrol, fully armed. The reference to my men, ne'are, in, in Hebrew, is not referring to the, the Jewish workers in general, but rather to a specific group, probably those soldiers who had escorted Nehemiah from Shushan to Jerusalem. Note how they had spears, bows, and armor. All things that to be effective, the men had to be thoroughly trained in and practiced at. And while these were rather standard light infantry weapons for that time, armor was expensive and it was not used by the militia. Also note how the leaders, referring to the military officers, stood to the rear, back from the work the laborers were doing. Their job was to control the forces, constantly assess the situation, and be ready to deploy their men and the militia for battle necessary. But the workers on the wall weren't exempt from potentially being part of the battle. They had to carry swords on their thighs as they carried loads of rubble away and they lifted huge stones into place. A plan was devised so that a man with a shofar was always next to Nehemiah. So if the city was attacked, Nehemiah would order the shofar player to sound the alarm and call everyone to the place where it was blown. After all, people were spread out along thousands of feet of walls. Each group, restoring their section, attack could come anywhere along that wall. But Nehemiah took another rather extreme precaution. He had the entire workforce in sleep in Jerusalem. This move accomplished a number of objectives, both practical and strategic. It protected the workers from harm. Eating and staying together as a group promotes camaraderie. It allowed the largest possible force to be ready to repel any attack. It allowed for shifts of watchmen to operate 24 hours a day. Save time so that folks didn't travel back and forth between between Jerusalem and their nearby villages. And, people being people, it didn't allow some to just drift away when the going got the toughest. In fact, at least a major portion of the people never took off their outer garments to sleep at night. They slept completely closed so that they could spring into action at a moment's notice. Well, let's pause and reflect for a moment. Because there's an important underlying principle that we would do well to think deeply upon. All this points towards something that goes back to our first two study lessons on the book of Nehemiah. This man was a well-trained leader. 
who was raised up for just such a time as this. And he answered God's call. He understood basic military tactics. He knew how to plan and to organize. He was a natural leader. He acted with authority and with confidence. His position as part of the king's royal court at the power center of Persia made him wise in the ways of politics. He understood the minds and ambitions of rulers and potentates and how to deal with them, sometimes diplomatically, at other times with brute force of arms. And as an obedient worshiper and follower of the God of Israel, he led them in a godly way, caring for the well-being of his people as a shepherd above himself. He was trained in the Torah by Ezra. So he knew and he followed God's laws and commandments. You know, he respected all humanity. But he also put his own people, the Jews, above the other nations. Because he knew that they were a specially chosen and separated people of God. This knowledge was a rarity for his time as the true religion of the Bible had given way to early Judaism and its mix of biblical law with man-made religious tradition that better accommodated the evolving political correctness and desires of the people. Nehemiah was intelligent. He was full of self-control, dynamic, fearless in the face of the enemy, and an obedient and humble servant to the Lord. Now for me, this is the model that a believing leader in the kingdom of God ought to emulate. Such leadership is vitally needed in the 21st century when Christianity and the Jewish people are under attack within and without. Not as much since perhaps the days of Nero, I think. Such leadership, especially in the church, is at the moment in short supply. People are asleep. But even good leaders can do nothing if the people are too fearful or they're indifferent. They don't want to arm themselves and fight. We must rid ourselves of our passivity of our fear and of our willful ignorance of God's Word. Willful. Instead, acknowledging that while we are so greatly privileged to live in a time that the prophets of old would have given anything to experience, a great responsibility comes with it. And that responsibility is to stand to stand up and be counted, to comfort and defend God's chosen people, Israel, and to get our hands dirty, to do God's work on this earth, and to reform that which has gone terribly astray among God's people. That is, within Christianity and Judaism, no matter how unpopular that might sound. Look around you. No, I mean literally. Look around you for a moment. Look around you. 
I ask you to fight the good fight for the sake of those around you. Fight for the spiritual and physical lives of your spouse, for your children, for your homes, for your nation, and all this believing community. It is under attack. If you won't stand after being alerted, who will? I mean, let us agree together to be as Nehemiah and the restorers of Jerusalem. To be like the coming tribulation saints of the end days who put aside self-interest to go against the Antichrist when the last few remaining believers alive finally get it that we've always been in a battle to the death since the day that God separated Abraham and his future descendants from all others on this planet. It's only that most of our brethren and our leadership has decided to sit it out and hope for the best. Now if you can hear this message, then the Lord is calling you. He's calling us. As the days of history count down to a close, He is calling us to be builders and warriors. Will you answer that call? Next week we'll get into chapter 5.